You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Yes, I am Don DiMuccio. And I want to remind everybody that if you like what you've been hearing, be sure to subscribe to the show, whether it's on iTunes or Google Podcast, Audible, YouTube, wherever you get your content, so you'll know immediately whenever new episodes are released. Also, leave us a five-star rating and review, if for no other reason than to help me stick it to the girls who wouldn't date me in high school. And believe you me, there's no shortage of those out there. You know, when I first started the show last year, I compiled a short list of artists I wanted to have on, and Susie Quattro was at the top of that list, and I am thrilled that we have her on for the hour. I'm sure anyone who ever saw the TV show Happy Days will recognize her from her semi-recurring role, the streetwise, hard-rocking Leather Tuscadero. But in all reality, by that time, she had already dominated the music world as a bona fide rocker who was one of the first female bass players to front her own band, racked up dozens of hit singles and best-selling albums, and opened up a whole new world of possibilities to future acts like The Runaways, Girls' School, The Go-Go's, L7, so many others. Now, whether you're her biggest fan or you've never heard the name Susie Quattro before, sit back and listen to this one. Her journey from a Detroit native 14-year-old member of a family band to the most famous female rocker in the UK and the world at large is as compelling as it is cautionary. Oh, my life, I wanted to be somebody and here I
If the name Susie Quattro only conjures up memories of the 70s sitcom Happy Days for you, then you don't know Susie. See what I did there? Because long before appearing on the small screen, the Detroit native was paying her dues in England as a hard-rocking, bass-playing, taking-no-BS, leather-clad front woman who left audiences mesmerized around the world. And in the process, blazed a trail for future female rockers like Joan Jett, Chrissy Hine, and countless others. Her latest release, The Devil in Me, proves that her six decades in music hasn't softened her edge one bit. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, singer, songwriter, bassist, author, radio host, and with all due respect, a true badass. The originator, Susie Quattro. Hello, Susie. Well, that's what I call an introduction. Well, I try. <laughs> you you do try. You do try. Absolutely. No. Bless his it's heart. Good, yeah, it's, it's, ni- it's nice to be with you. I'm, I'm going to enjoy this conversation. Well, I hope so. It's such an honor to speak to a true rock pioneer like yourself. Where are you this, uh, I'll say this morning? It's not morning where you are, this afternoon. I am in the UK where I've been based since 1971. I was only supposed to be here for three months. <laughs> it makes me laugh. 1971, I signed a contract with Mickey Mouse to come over and make an album, and I was supposed to go home after three months. It's now 2021. I think I got it kind of wrong. <laughs> yeah, just a tad. Whereabouts in the UK are you? I'm in the Essex countryside. I've lived here since 1980 in an Elizabethan manor house, finished, finished being built in 1590. Wow. My house was built in 1962, and I think that's old. No, no, no. Uh. You're you're talking old. You're talking spirits. You're talking atmosphere. I mean, you can't have a house this old, even if you're a skeptic, without coming in and feeling the energy. It's just not possible. I bet. You know, it's funny. You've been there, what, 50 years now? No accent whatsoever. And I don't want one. <laughs> and and in fact, you mentioned Happy Days. And I have to say, I was on the set the first day rehearsing for the first episode that I was ever to be in. And I was speaking and doing my lines and all that. And the director, bless him, I loved him, Jerry Paris. He came up to me and he said, Susie. I said, yeah. He said, could you come back to Detroit? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're sounding a little bit English. I said, no, I'm not. But from that moment on, I became aware how easy it was to lose your roots. And I concentrated on staying Detroit. I'm glad you said that because I have stayed Detroit. In every way possible, too. And I want to congratulate you on a very strong new album, The Devil and Me, and those two singles are fantastic. And Thank I understand you. it came about because like everybody else in the business, you had almost 100 gigs canceled due to this lockdown. Talk a little bit about how the album came to be. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I have to, sorry, it's a kind of a long answer. I'm a glass half full by nature person. It doesn't mean I can't sway to the other side, but most of the time I'm optimistic. I had built up my career and my gigs and everything was up to the height of my powers. 2019, I released, sorry, 2018, I released the first album with my son, Richard, which we wrote, produced, and he played guitar and just critically acclaimed, no control. Then I released the end of 2019, my documentary, Suzy Q, which rolled the top of the Amazon charts, was everywhere. Every cinema in the world, and critics were nuts. They went nuts on it. Then I was I was doing, I think I did about 100 shows, 2019. Most of them solo shows where I would do my two-hour show with an interval, taking you everything from the pleasure seekers right up to the, to the present day. Playing piano, playing drums, playing bass, da-da-da-da-da. And then we had 2020, 
huge, huge amount of gigs. And the company took up the option to make the next album with me and my son. They had an option on one more album. And my son and I, because my son was working with Biba Doobie, that was her name. And uh, he wasn't sure when he could write. And I wasn't sure when I could. And we were thinking, God, when are we going to do this? And then, hallelujah, <laughs> the lockdown came. Of course, we were both like, oh, my God, as everybody was. Right. Then I said to my son, okay. Me, this is where my glass half full nature comes out. I say, okay, you're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere, right? We wondered when we could do this. We can do it now. You go in the studio. You write with your tracks and your computers. That's not what I'm into. I will sit on the patio with my acoustic guitar, my acoustic bass, and write, and we will make this album. And we got, we dove in. That's the only way I can say it. We dove into it. There were no distractions. That, that's a good thing. Not like, oh, okay, this song is nearly done. I got a few gigs and we'll come back and finish it. None of that. Right. We, we dove in. So we found ourselves swimming in creativity. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Swimming in creativity. Oh, that's a title for a song. Write it down. So that's what <laughs> happened. Yeah. And, and, and I, I glibly said on the, on the promotion, on the album, this is my best work. I wish I'd never said it. Because every reviewer has said it. And I didn't need to say it at all, so that's okay. You know, at the risk of sounding like a fanboy, when I heard the single, I said, this is better than anything I've heard her do. And at that, and that's a high bar. And then, no, that is. It, that, that is, and thank you. I thank you for that. And here's, i got to tell you a little story about that. Please. Um, when we were deciding on the second album before the lockdown, we, we knew we'd probably do another one. We didn't know if the record company was going to pick up the usher, but we knew we would do one. Right. And and we were just talking on the phone, my son and I, who, by the way, has been my nemesis, um, <laughs> which I never expected. I'm going to have to ground him soon. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, we were talking and I said, oh, God, Richard, will the angels guard the devil in me? And he went, Mom. I said, yeah. He said, that's the next album. I said, it is. It is. So I wrote down that title, which became The Devil in Me, and I wrote a set of lyrics right away, almost like a poem. Mm. And I tried for about two or three months to put some kind of music to that, and I, I couldn't get it. It was great lyrics, and I couldn't get it. Then, I'm sorry, it's a long story, but no, it's please. important. Okay, then it came to the last track on the album that we're doing, uh, on The Devil in Me, and Richard said, Mom, I got this one more thing. I want you to hear it. And I heard it, and I said he had a riff. You know, he put Richard puts down tracks for me to listen to, and then I then I play with them and take my bass, work out the bass line, work out the melody, work out the lyrics, get the title, and um, I said, uh, send that to my computer. I like it. He said, okay. So he sent it. I went into my main office. This is all artists will relate to this. Went into my office on my main computer. Got my acoustic bass. Got my songwriting booklet with all my ideas, sometimes titles, sometimes one-liners. And I'm listening to it, and I'm flicking through the book, waiting to find the page with the right thing that would fly out at me as saying, I belong here. Right. Okay? So I'm flicking away, flicking away, and all of a sudden, and I tell you because it's the truth, the lyrics, and I didn't know they were lyrics. I thought maybe this is just a poem because I have poetry books out. They fell out of the book and landed face up on my keyboard. And I went, 
Okay. You know, mom always told me it's all about what my mother used to say to me. Right. And I and and even if you're a skeptic, I kind of went, okay, this is fine. And I looked at the lyrics that were lying there, and I started to play my bass, and I started to sing the song, and it was absolutely perfect. It, it's crazy. Even, like I say, even if you're a skeptic, how did that happen? I'm no hero. Marks on my soul. I made mistakes. I've been down that black hole. Ow, mama always told me if you go astray. And the other thing too, and there's a lesson for songwriters out there, save everything. Oh God, yes. Don't discard it. Yeah, I can't find anything for it, throw it up. No, because you never know. No, you don't know. And I have to say creation is almost, it's a religious experience. Yes. I have had moments where I, I just can't tell you, the goosebumps come up, you know, you're sometimes you're working on a song and you're working on it and you're trying and sometimes that happens. Other times, it flies. It flies out of you. Your pen cannot keep up with your mind. And you don't know and where it's coming from. You don't know. But what I say is, I'm kind of like, when those moments happen, I'm a secretary, and I'm taking down dictation. Luckily, I do do really good shorthand. But it's a very special experience. Creation is very special. It's almost like it's already out there, and it's up to us to be able to pull it down. Yes, and I think... Okay, to be a little bit snobby here now, I do. Okay, I have to say it. Artists, creators, this is what people like me are put on this earth for. We're put here to entertain, create. You know, this this is why we're here. There's many of us. And we seem, and I will say, I shouldn't say just the successful ones because sometimes other people that aren't successful, they have it too. My son wasn't successful until I pulled him out, you know? Yeah. Anyway, we all have intuition. We all have that ability to listen to the cosmos. I know that sounds hippy trippy, but it's what it is. And if you're an artist, and especially if you're a successful one, you're able to hear it and drag it down and make it come out. And you just have to honor it. It's a gift, and we don't oh, know it, where it comes from. No, it is. You know, okay, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was writing with a friend of mine who I'm sure you know, Katie Tunstall. She's oh, yeah. very successful. Sure. Yeah, we, we connected. We've written together now. We have an album due out, you know, maybe uh, next year sometime when I'm free of my obligations. And I'm very quick. I can't help it. When I'm writing, it flows, and it goes quick. And I, whoa, whoa. I'm like that. I can't help it. And we were writing away, and I said, uh, take me to the edge of pleasure. And I went, yeah. And she went, ooh, this thing is too big to measure. I went, ooh. And we connected. <laughs> I, said, nice. I said, it's the first time I wrote with anybody that I didn't have to wait for. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened. It just connected. It did. Yeah. Well, that's did. great. And you can't bottle that. You can't sell it. You just mm -mm. go, yeah. Well, let me rewind the clock a little bit. 
because you come from a big family. You know, paternal grandparents came from Italy, and they kind of did what my grandfather did, changed the last name. I think yours was Quattrochi? It was Quattrochi, and when he immigrated at nine, they took one look at his uh, name on Ellis Island, and then they said, welcome to America, Michael Quattro. <laughs> so he was Michael Quattro, yeah. and my dad was our Quattro, and all of us are. Everybody always says, what's your real name? Everybody. Mm. And what a great stage name that is. It is. Isn't it? Isn't I, it? Years ago, I thought it was a stage name. No. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, talk to me growing up in the suburbs of Detroit in the late 50s, early 60s. Definitely the epitome of a factory town. Dad was also a musician, I understand. Yes, my dad was, uh, he was a child prodigy on violin when he was very young. And then, of course, life happened. He went to college, and then there the, the Wall Street crash. Yeah. And everybody had to go out and get jobs, and he had to get a job. His college education went out the window, but very bright boy. And he eventually started to work as an engineer at General Motors, either General Motors or Chrysler in Detroit. He went for General Motors. Mm. He then, you know, he married my mom, and they started to have kids. And he said, wait a minute, I'm a good musician. And he started to play music part-time. Well, my memory of him is waking up at 5 in the morning, getting on the bus to go to the General Motors, coming home at 5, having dinner, and going out in the evening and doing his gigs. And he earned a great living out of that. He had his own little agency. He played all the society and and everything I am musically, mm. musically, is down to my father. That clip in the documentary of him playing, where, where was that from? That was from... Uh, Arlington, Texas. He lived in the last days of my mother's life. They had a little apartment on the side of my sister's house. He was losing it at that point because he, he had dementia in the end. And my little sister said that they tried to do that take approximately 30 times. Oh. And he couldn't get it, but he wanted to do it, but he couldn't. You know sure. you know how you go. Everybody knows what that disease yeah. is. But, yeah. uh, but he wanted to say it, and he did. And um, he, he said to me, it might have been in the documentary, but I said it again now because it's important. I must have been about 15, 16, two years in the band, and I'd studied piano and drums and bongos, and I'd been in the music all my life. And he pulled me aside. I don't know why he didn't tell everybody else we were all in the band together, but he only told me. And he said, Susie, I have something to tell you. I said, yeah, Dad. He said, okay, you're in this business. Yes, Dad. One thing you have to remember. If you do a gig for 10 people or 10,000 people, Every one of them is taking money out of their pocket to pay to come and see you. And you owe them. And if you can't perform at your best, you don't belong on that stage. And that became my professional Bible, sure. if you like. Do you understand that? Yes. I don't know why it went into me, but it went into me as a fact of life that you owe it to whoever is out there. It can be one drunk at the bar. It doesn't matter. He's watching you. And I've had those nights. Oh, me too. Yes. Oh, my God, me too. And and my, my quest, my quest when I was like 16, 17, working in clubs in New York and Washington and Chicago, where you had to do five sets a night, and the first set was nobody, maybe one or two drunks at the bar. Right. And I, and I made it a, a, a challenge for myself. Could I get those one or two drunks at the bar to look at me? And when I did that, I won. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is no matter how shitty as a musician you might be feeling that night, not feeling the vibes, fighting with the musician, whatever, you don't know that somebody in that audience, you may be the highlight of their day, of their week. Sure. So it's a responsibility that goes along with being on stage. It's not about you. 
Santa no, this Paul. is uh, yeah. You get it. You get it. What my dad said. You're on the same page. Yes. You know, I was I was born. This I feel. I was born to create, entertain, and communicate. This is why I was put on this earth. I take it seriously, really seriously. And I can be in front of 10,000 people that I've done it, and I can find one person, one person in, in the rows that isn't going, and I'll find him, and I'll put the light on him. You're playing to that person. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're going to go whether you like it or not. That's it. <laughs> it's funny, just before you were introduced, I played your 1974 single, The Wild One which has one of the two best spoken word opening salvos in rock and roll. All my life, I want to be somebody, and here I am. I love that. And the other one is the, the Shangri-Las. When you say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V. Those are like the two songs that I've heard in my life. They said, that's just so cool, the way it just starts like that. Were groups like the Shangri-Las an inspiration to you? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, I was a young girl, and I used to dance as one of the regular audience, as in bandstand, American bandstand, yeah. on, on a show called Club 1270. And I would see all the acts, including the Shangri-Las, all the more. They were in front of me. And I was a big fan of Mary Weiss and the Shangri-Las. And in fact, I interviewed her while I had my 15-year stint on BBC Radio 2 here in London. Yeah, you know, when we made The Wild One, I said to Mike, I have a, a feeling that I need to say something at the intro. And he said, okay, show me what you got. And that came out my mouth. All my life I wanted to be somebody, and here I am. And you know what? Since that record was made, I've been opening my show with it because you can't explain me better than that. All my life I wanted to be somebody, and here I am. Somebody gave me a T-shirt years ago in Australia, I have to say. And it said on the front, all my life I wanted to be somebody, and on the back it said, now I forgot who it is. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Is that brilliant? That's so true. <laughs> I wore that. For, I have wore that for years. I thought, my God, if that isn't a leveler, what is? <laughs> when you say it, if, if 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 another artist said that, it'd come off as arrogant. I know, and it does, but not me. It does. You know what? No. Do you know why that is? Why? I give you a little clue. I was pulling out just the other day, funny enough, my mother saved, of all five kids, a folder and gave it to us all when we were ready to leave the nest of everything, immunizations, uh, report cards, everything that she collected of us. And I was looking at mine the other day, and I pulled out the 10th, was not, not the 10th, I mean, my 10-year-old report from school. Mm. And the teacher had written, Susie is clever, if she could stop talking and not trying so hard to be popular, she would do very well. And I thought to myself, well, I've made my career on that. No kidding. So what a strange thing to say. And because of those things that I have in me, that made me who I am. And my husband said to me just the other day, two or three days ago, he said, why do you care about somebody that doesn't like you? You know, I don't care. And I thought, well, I do. And this makes me the ultimate performer mm -hmm. because I have the need in me to be liked. Do, do you get that? It's that, a strange that, thing to that say. That is at the root of all musicians, you know, artists. You, you, why would you do it if, if you didn't want that feedback, that validation? And it's not even, may I just add? Yeah. It is not, and this is important because I, and I, when you see my documentary, you, you see that about me. This is not ego-driven whatsoever. No, no, not no, that. No, 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 because, no, otherwise I wouldn't be standing on the side of the stage 
after 58 years thinking to myself, oh God, I hope they like me. You know what I mean? That wouldn't be happening. No. So it is the simple fact that you want to go out there, do your best and be appreciated. And then the creative cycle is complete. Right. But I think it's like that with anybody who's an artist. I don't care if you're yes. a baker. You know, of course. You need, you're not going to just push out product, push out product. You need to get that feedback from who is enjoying your product. Okay, then you have to ask the question. Now we get, we're getting psychological yeah. now. Um, is it is it simply, and then you have to define the word, but is it creative people who have this need? Creative. And you can't create doing anything. I agree. It can be a baker, it can be anything. But some people have a job that they don't create. Right. They, they just do. They just do. And, yeah. and that's that's not a bad thing. No. But when you're a creative person, you you have to have that completion of the creative cycle. People who don't know think we're talking like two mad people. It's <laughs> not like crazy people. What are they talking about? Get a job. It's it's esoteric. It is. I didn't know you were a regular on a local TV show. And like every major city had those back then. You must have seen everybody who came through town. But I was gonna ask you, what was your first concert? My first concert was concert concert. Yeah. I got invited to the first Beatles show in Detroit. You saw them. Uh, yeah. And I hated it because I couldn't hear the band. I did not like the screaming. I didn't want to know. And I had to leave. Really? Yeah. Isn't that strange? And yet I love it when it's me. But I have to say with my concerts, I control the reaction. Did you get that? Yeah. I say, come up, scream, shout, or shush, I'm talking. And that's, and the poor Beatles, and they, and I know Paul McCartney, we have, we've had dinner together, and they actually didn't like that. Of course not. No. I mean, okay, screaming is fine in some places, but you're out there doing a show, at least listen to some of the stuff, you know. But that was my first concert I saw. I was uh, 14, and I was just, just starting to be in a band at that point. I'm going to take a stab. Was it Cobo Hall? It was, oh, God, no, it wasn't Cobo Hall. Which was it? Oh, God. It wasn't Cobo Hall. It was a smaller gig, and I can't remember where it was. But I know it wasn't Cobo Hall. It was a big theater. It might have been the Grandy Ballroom or the East Town. I don't know. But it was not Cobo Hall. I and would have could, remembered that. And I know, you know, you said it was too cacophonous with the audience, and you walked out. But could you hear anything? Like I'm a drummer, and I always wonder, could you hear the kick drum at all? Could you hear Paul's bass at all? Or was it just like a radio in the background? All you got was screaming. And you could just hear a little, like, like yeah, like a transistor radio in the background. And I said, this is not what a show is. No. You know, even if you love the band and you're a big fan, let them perform. Right. Let them do what they do, you know. Right. I, I'm a big Beatles fan. We all were, you know. But, um, yeah, I didn't like that. And I always made sure, especially after I started having hits, that I controlled the atmosphere, not the other way around. I wanna be your man I wanna be your man I wanna be your man 
PA doesn't hurt either. Oh, sure. But they didn't have that. They didn't even have no. monitors. No, that that's actually a good point. That's a good point. But, but they were there to be looked at. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. That's not being an artist. No, and that's why they gave up touring. Sure. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And it's a shame. Yeah. Because they were a damn good band. Oh yeah. Everyone had seen them. I, I I met somebody who actually saw them. In England in 63, when they were still playing ballrooms. And there wasn't that much nonsense like that, like you're describing. And they yeah, said, sure. boy, were they tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my husband is uh, born and raised in Hamburg. And he, I mean, I want to do a book with him. I actually want to write because I've got, I'm working on my sixth book now. I'm an author. Yes. I would love to do his stories because he saw them all the time when they were the house band. Wow. Yeah, and he says to me, they were nothing special, but... I remember seeing them. So it's a bit a little bit of a double edge. Right. You know? That they that they were just the house band naturally. You weren't nobody was going in there saying, Oh, we're seeing the Beatles. They were just seeing a band playing in the in the club. But he said something about them stuck out to me. Yep. I've heard that before. Like there were bands like the big three who technically were better than them. Technically. Yes, a lot of them. Actually there were. But they didn't but have that something. What they had was and like I said, I know Paul. We have we go we have a history. Um, I can't go into it because it's private. But I I, I told him things that I had a, a dream one night, and they all ended up being true. And he he said, "Let's go out for dinner because I I dreamed these things that had happened, and I had no idea they had happened anywhere." Yeah. yeah. So we connected. But what they had was a puzzle coming together of four personalities. You had your philosopher. You had your angelic. You had your smart ass. You had your quiet one. You had four different kind of people all perfecting the jigsaw puzzle, all of them. And they were all important. And of course, you had the magic of McCartney and Lennon. Yeah. And that you can't manufacture. Nope. Sorry, Bay City Rollers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they challenged each other. They, yeah. The two of them did. Paul had his talent, his area. Yeah. John had his talent, is his area. And both were interested in the other and neither one of them could do the other, mm -hmm. but they somehow married. What magic. I mean, I, she's gone now, but I became very, very good friends with Cynthia then and John's oh, yeah. first wife. Yeah. And we had a good friendship and I, I miss her dearly, love her to pieces. She told me a lot about those early days. You sure. know? She says that uh, if it wasn't for the Beatles, a lot of magic would have been missing from this life. And I make that pretty correct. This whole world would be different. I mean, yeah. I, we could talk 20 hours on this. I mean, yeah, we, can. we wouldn't be here talking about music. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I agree. They had something. How do you explain it? They had, you can't. Uh, you can't. You, no, you can't explain it. No. Oh, I can. I have one word. Magic. The band we have tonight, they're so big that they're just about the hottest thing around right now. They have an advantage over other groups because they not only play so well, but they look so fine. The Pleasure Seekers. <laughs> You've made reference to it a couple of times with the Pleasure Seekers, because I think there might be people who, under the false impression that, you know, you were a new artist in 73 and you hit the UK oh, God, as an overnight no. success. When you were 14, you were already a well-seasoned, battle-hardened pro. You were in a signed band, the Pleasure Seekers, with your sisters. Yeah, 100%. Um, well, I learned bongo drums at the age of seven. 
and I played with my dad in his jazz band. I got 25 cents a show. I think I was underpaid. Anyway, <laughs> you think? Uh, it, it doesn't. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Maybe overpaid if I was that crap. Who knows? Should have called the Any, union. Yeah, I should have done. Anyway, then uh, I went to classical piano. So I read, write, and play classical piano. I read, write, and play percussion. I was in the school band. Then we saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, 1964. I'll never forget it. And we all were watching, you know, all families, as you know, all families watch that show. And then we all went on the phone and we called two friends of ours, sisters. They got on another friend, another line, two doors down from us, whose dad played clarinet in my dad's band. How weird is this? Anyway, yep, 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 yep. Oh, the Beatles. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. And then my sister, Patty, I remember she said, hey, what about if we start an all-girl band? Everything went quiet. And then we all went, yeah, yeah, we're all talking at one time. So then Nan said, I'm playing drums. Diane said, I'm playing keyboards. Patty said, I'm playing lead guitar. Mary Lou said, I'm playing rhythm. I went, wait a minute, what am I playing? I was quiet. I'm usually never quiet. And my sister Patty said, you're going to play bass. Okay, that's how it started. And just to finish the story, to make every musician want to shoot me on sight, which they will. Most kids, when they start their bands, they get given cheap instruments to begin with to see if it's a hobby or a serious endeavor. Right. I went to my dad. I said, hi, dad. We're starting a band. He said, good, 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 good. And I said, so do you have a bass? He said, yes, I do. Can I borrow it? Yes, you can. You ready? Go ahead. 1957 Fender Precision mm. Gold Scratch Plate Stripe up the back of the neck Sunburst finish Excuse me, would you like to shoot me? <laughs> <laughs> you still have it, I've seen it I, Is it amazing That in the big scheme of things When you look at life in general I got given this bass guitar To learn on and play I didn't know it was a big neck How did I know? I never played bass before Right I didn't know it was a heavy bass. I knew nothing. All I knew was I was given this, and this is what I had to master, and master it I did. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of to me like the fickled finger of fate just stepped in and said, this is who you are. And of course it makes sense because most guys aren't musicians and their kids say, I want to play drums. They, they get them a little care because they know how kids are. They're fickle. Tomorrow they'll do something else. Sure. Your dad, fickle. Your dad knew. He knew. He must have done. And you know what's even funnier? I remember, you know, with five kids, you don't fly with your family on trips. You take car trips because it's very expensive back then. We took a lot of car trips, all five kids in the big car. And I remember we would do a lot of sing songs, a lot. My mother sang, my dad, everybody sang. We had that sister harmony thing going. It was great. Mm. And, I, and I remember that always, no matter what we were singing, my dad driving would be going, a boom, ba doom. Boom, 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 yeah. boom. And I used to think to myself, Dad, you got the best part. See? So you were already keying in I, on the bass. I was percussive minded. Yes. Yeah. It's funny. Like, what are you, 5'1, five, 5'2? Five, you're small. You got this big, heavy bass. You know, Keith Richards used to fight with Billy Wyman because Keith wanted him to use a, a P bass on stage. It no. Was too, it was too heavy for him. What? Yeah. Do you know what I played for many years? What? 
the Les Paul professional recording bass. It weighs more than I do. And I carried it from Earl's Court to London on the underground. And I've given it to men and they've gone, oh, for Christ's sake. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what it is about me. I can't explain. All I know is that the weight ratio seems to work. If I had to Ma- guess, I think you like the strength of it, the power. I do. A little semi-hollow Hoffner wouldn't do it for you. Oh, God, no, how boring. Yeah. It's like having a short boyfriend. No, thank you. Hey, hey. How, hey. I resemble you, that remark. Oh, no, are you short? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so, okay, does it bother you? No, my whole family, little Italian guys. My, but who cares anyway? Short. Yeah, yeah. Who cares? You know what? I'm I'm short. I'm 5'2", but in my mind, I'm six foot two. There you go. Mark Bolin was a little guy, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. It doesn't make any difference. It really doesn't. No. It doesn't. Size is all in the mind. Oh, my God. Don't even go there. Yes. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is all just a, a shell we're all in, in the end. Doesn't matter. Right? Wow. You have this, a lot of the same thoughts I do. I'm sorry. I'm going to diverse for a moment. Please. What sign are you? Aquarius. Okay. Born yeah. on the same, not the same day, but the same date. That the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, February 9th. Oh my God, is that strange? Yeah. And my mother was born on February 8th. Okay, so you Aquarians, you you have to, and uh, we won't go into it, but I just, I just have to say it. I've studied it my whole life. Yeah. yeah. You Aquarians, you travel to the beat of a different drum, and you know that. Mm-hmm. And, and then we'll stop the subject, but this is good for your show. One thing I love about Aquarians, I love this about Aquarians. You can be in a, I'm going to give you an analogy here. You can be in a conversation and somebody is talking to you about a particular subject, maybe a touchy one, whatever, and you listen and you listen and you listen politely. And at the end of that conversation, you just go, no. (laughs) Right, right, right. Is that you? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. My mother did it all the time. So now you were with the band, with the Pleasure Seekers. You, know, you had a good local following, probably regional following. The late 60s changed styles a little bit, changing into a new band cradle. Wasn't really your cup of tea, I guess. Well, we had we, we turned into very quickly, due to my older sister joining the band. She was nine years old, and she had three kids. And we lost a keyboard player, and she came in. And due to that happening, her husband out of seven, don't go there, <laughs> um, don't go there. And uh, he he started to manage the band. My dad liked it because it was a, a husband looking after us and three sisters out of the four together. So he liked it. But we turned into very quickly, maybe out of necessity, a show band because he had to support three kids, you know? Mm. So we had to make good money. So we started to be booked out as a show band. We did five sets a night. We changed instruments. We had a a Beatles set, we had a Motown set, we had a Top 40 set, we had all sorts of things. We would switch instruments and dance midstream, and so we became a show band. That's what the Pleasure Seekers were, and we were very good, I have to say, and I totally enjoyed that. I sang 99.9% of the songs, so I was always having to discover things like uh, chlorophyll or whatever it was, spray on the throat even though you're dying and your throat is bleeding you can still sing sure i i i discovered many years ago how to be able to do five shows a night and make it work and that's huge too another reason why you came out almost ready-made 
I mean, because you'd worked so long at it, but it appears to the general public, oh, she just she just started yesterday. Oh, because you did all those five sets a night, and you know, I think the kids, the kids today, the kids today, they just they find them, they put them on stage, and they're not ready. They're not really ready for the. No, don't yeah. even go there. Don't even go there. I've written a few songs on the No Control album. I wrote Easy Pickings, uh, the Back to the Drive album. I wrote Fifty Minutes of Fame. I have an opinion on that. I go on my soapbox. And I do, because if I'm going to give advice to anybody wanting to be in this business, up and coming, I would say, first of all, be honest with yourself and know that you have the talent, number mm. one. Second of all, learn properly one instrument, just one. Mm. So you have the theory behind you. Third, always be professional, always. And fourth, do every gig that God sent you. And five, keep your feet firmly on the ground. Done. Age of 16, I was on the road Doing things you've never seen And I've been used, I've been Mickey Most comes into your life, very well-known UK producer, worked with Herman's Hermits, Donovan, Jeff Beck, Yardbirds. Mickey Most signed you, but not your sisters. And I'm really intrigued about that family dynamic of how they handled that situation. Well, you know, that's, if you watch the documentary, it's, it's, it's quite obvious. It was very hard. Um, I have to say it as it is. First of all, when you have one out of four sisters being picked out, it's always going to be a problem. You know, don't kid yourself that it's not going to be a problem because it is. Uh, but also the other flip side of that coin is, and I've talked to many other famous people about this subject. And I've said to them other in the same kind of level as me, you know, like the lead person, but da, 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 whatever you call it. I hate using the word fame, but I can't find another word, you know, at the bar after a show, we're all talking. And I said, okay, I even said it to Paul McCartney. Are you going to tell me that you didn't know as you were being in your bands that you were going to be picked out as the one? And nobody has told me otherwise. They've all said, yes, I did. Mm -hmm. And I did. Mm -hmm. And it's something you know from very early on, even from way, way back. I was 16, 17. The husband was managing us and we were... We didn't have any roadies because we couldn't afford them. We're setting up, you know, we're carrying in a Hammond organ between four girls. Give me a break. Anyway, <laughs> so we're setting up and the husband said to the rest of the girls, unbeknownst to me, I was there, but he said, I didn't know he was going to say it. He said, okay, guys, you do know we have to put most of the lights on Susie. I went, oh, Jesus Christ. So it's one of those things that you do acknowledge, but it doesn't mean that when that time comes and you are tapped on the shoulder and you know that you have to go because I was tapped two times within one week, solo contract, solo contract. Yeah. It's it's not easy emotionally. You are dying inside. You feel bad. You feel like you've let everybody down, that you're not taking everybody with you. But at the same time, the business side of you knows this is your moment and you have to go. And you're not denying anybody anything. In actual fact, they, they're completely free to do whatever they want to do. Right. And and the key thing is, is 
which I have to say at this juncture because it's important. I had an offer from Electra Records to go solo. And uh, they offered me to go to New York and turn me into the next Janis Joplin, which I didn't like the idea of. Mickey Most said, I'll take you to England and make you into the first Susie Quattro, which That's appealed it. to me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I remember going into the bedroom with my mom and dad. I was 21, so I was free, mm. legal, legally free. And I said, okay, I've had this and this, and I have to tell you, I'm going to take the English offer. And my mom started to cry because I was going away. And my dad looked at me, and this is a real pivotal moment in my life. He looked at me very quietly, and then he said, Susie, you do realize your sisters won't make it without you. Whoa. Well, that's a heavy burden. Are you, you kidding? A oh. heavy burden? And what did he mean by make it? Oh, my God. It took me till in my nearly 40s to enjoy my success because I took that on board. Yeah. And I knew that that was the truth. And it's not a nice thing to know. And it makes you feel guilty and all the other things that come with it. But at the same time, you cannot deny your own God-given path. And that's what I was doing. Right. And it, it was really hard. It's hard still. You know, it's hard still. But I wouldn't have changed anything that I did. This is my chance. Was it Patty who went with Fanny? Yes. Okay. And, so she, and she had every chance in the world. There you go. Oh, she went with a good band, great band, great you band. know, and yeah. yeah, great band. So, so why still resent me that I took my path? Well, see, that's the thing. Yeah, I want to be diplomatic, but it does seem odd. I mean, here you are, you you get both sides. You understand. You're you're an adult. You get it. They seem like they're still harboring something. Yeah, and it's not really fair. And uh, it didn't dawn on me how much it was until I saw the documentary. And then I really got it. And I have since made amends with my little sister, Nancy. We're fine. We talk all the time. Patty still holds this, I don't know, this anger. All I can call it is anger. Mm. Uh, and I've tried very hard to make amends with her. But uh, because I was brought up that family is family. But there's only so much you can do. Probably less and anger and more resentment. Yeah. That I, used to, I used to say the word jealousy. And she got really mad at me one time. I don't accept that word. I said, okay, what word will you accept? She said, resentment. I mm. said, okay. Mm. okay and that's probably you... accurate. Maybe it is. Because Maybe Angel, it is. she's not mad at you that you made it. She's so resentful. She's... Right, right, that she didn't. That's yeah. yeah, 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 I get that. That she wanted what I had, and that I understand, but it wasn't up to me to give that to her. And I don't want to belabor the topic, but tell the story of the Thanksgiving cassette you received. Oh, rah, rah, rah. Okay. <laughs> Boy, you pick your questions, don't you? Okay, nearly time to go. Um, no, no, it's, <laughs> no, it's okay. I tell it. I'm in London. I'm by myself. I've left everybody. I had to leave half of my uh, advance from Mickey Mouse to Patty because she said I owed for equipment. I was virtually living on stealing food from kitchens and pubs. Anyway, so not a good place. Nothing was happening quickly. I was recording, but it wasn't. It wasn't going anywhere yet. And uh, I was there from October 31st, and then it was Christmas time. My dad actually offered to fly me home, and I thought to myself, if I go home, I never, I never go again, and I can't do that to myself. I'd made a decision. I was coming to be successful, done, determined. And I said, no, no, Dad. Anyway, on Christmas Eve or just the day before, a tape arrived at the hotel. He said, here, this came for you. And I went, oh, Wow. And I went upstairs, ran upstairs to my room. And I remember I'm alone and it's Christmas. Okay, I'm alone. I have no money, no food. 
in a shitty little room. Okay. Mm-hmm. I opened up the, the, the package and it said, the Quattro family Thanksgiving. I went, yes, fantastic. And I put it on my little tape, ready to enjoy my family's noise and conversation and blah, blah. And the insults came. The insults. Now, the family did not know my dad was playing a tape. They didn't know it. He started that. And things, you know, you saw it in the documentary. Oh, she's sloppy. And oh, she's not that good. I remember my dad's opening comment. And I have the tape still. I kept it forever. What do you guys think about Susie being signed by Mickey Most? I mean, she's not the special one. And I just, Can you imagine how I sung in my heart inside? I died. I died. What was he I, thinking? I don't know. And there is projects being in the works now of movie, TV, whatever coming out. And that's the question that we have to address. What was he thinking? I don't know. I haven't got the answer for that. Um, he could have been trying to spur me on. Or I think, in my own opinion, he was showing me what I had done to the family. Maybe in anger. I don't have the answer. And I'm a really, really clever psychological girl, as you can hear by talking to me. As you can hear. But I don't have the answer to that one. It's a real dilemma. I don't know what his point was. I don't know. You know, even watching the documentary, I thought, you know, he's either the cruelest man, and it doesn't seem like he was. I mean... No, and he's not. No. Or... Maybe he was giving you a gift in a weird way, something to put a spark under you, something to make you drive even harder. Maybe in case you were feeling guilty to turn it into a, I'll show them. I'll work doubly hard to do it. Who knows? It could have been this weird, twisted, tough love thing. Well, you're a clever guy. I'm going to give you your credit. Thank it you. could be that. And maybe that's where I can put it on the shelf now. And and that's, I take that point on board. Thank you for that. Sure. Um, but whatever it was, I could not have not included that in my documentary because it was a pivotal moment in my life. Sure. And I either survived that or I collapsed and went home and forgot all my dreams. But I survived it. Talk about that first recording session. I know you did a single, Rolling Stone, 1970. There's some heavy hitters on that record as your backing band. Oh, God, yeah. There's Peter Frampton. Yeah. Um, myself on bass guitar, um, Mick Waller, who used to be in the faces on drums. Oh, just an Errol Brown from Hot Chocolate. Just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. It was a great track, actually. How did you and record they, that? Uh, did you go direct inject or mic and amp? No, 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 no. We Those are the days where you were still recording in the room as a band. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. hallelujah. Sure. And I, re- I remember on that track, it was just dum dum right and that was that was the riff yeah and i remember because we're recording it all in one go it's a track you put it down at one if you don't get it right you do it again and i remember the drummer saying to me susie you're speeding up at the end and i said mick if i am it's a natural speed up and leave it in (laughs) (laughs) and and that's me i gotta say that's me and it was a (laughs) big hit in portugal number one you know there's a theme in, the, in in a lot of people's careers where they're huge everywhere around the world and some reason America eludes them. I don't think it's because America has some special power. We're more discerning than everybody else. No, I think it's just the opposite. Your debut album, for example, in your single, Can the Can, it was a monster hit in the UK. Huge, all around the world. It was, that's it. And it sounds like when you listen to that first album, like you jumped in a time machine, 
You went ahead to 1980, soaked up the punk and the new wave thing, and then you brought it back to the early 70s. I know. It doesn't make sense to me. You're right what you say. And if you look at the documentary, a lot of the big people in there said, I was too early. Maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case. I was doing what I was doing and just a little bit too early for America to get it. But then Happy Days happened. Yeah. And they discovered Susie Quattro through Happy Days as La the Tuscadero. Hello. <laughs> but that's the thing. So it's not that you were too early. We were too late. You were too late. And I remember when I went over there in 74 for my first American tour with my English band with hits million sellers under my belt. Mm. I remember riding in the car, switching on the radio, and all I heard was Eagles or Linda Ronstadt. Pop radio? My yeah. God. You had yeah, Telly Savalas doing If. Yeah, and, you uh, just, yeah, 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 yeah. You were not ready for me. And once I had uh, Happy Days, and then you saw this bass playing, obviously, real musician doing her thing. Um, and then I had Stumbling In, which wasn't really me, but was a brilliant, brilliant song. Right. One of the evergreens in this world. It's one of the top ones. And then Joan was able to come through with I Love Rock and Roll because they'd seen me on Happy Days playing a guitar in a band. All right, I was going to talk about that later, but since you brought it up, we have to talk about Happy Days. And at the risk of sounding like a complete dork in front of a musical pioneer, I have to admit that when I was six, I had the biggest crush on you. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell was going on in my head. And I just couldn't wait till one of your episodes yet. And I'm surprised now to learn that you did seven episodes. Didn't seem like that many. I think that was nine altogether. It might have just been seven. But I did it over three years because I was always on the road or recording. And uh, I was in Japan on tour. I was huge in Japan, which is so confusing to me. This subservient women's society and they love me. Hello. Um, doesn't make sense. Anyway, I got called by my American publicist, Toby Mamis, and he said... There's this show in America, great show. I hadn't seen it yet. And they want you to audition for this part that they have. And I said, okay. He said, believe me, Susie, you want to do it. I said, okay. Okay, I trusted him. And I flew over there on my own money. And I went to the Paramount Studios, met the director, met the producer, met Henry. I remember I walked in in my normal leather outfit, like I always ride street leathers. I had strange leathers. Mm -hmm. And Gary, Gary Marshall said, Oh, that's clever of you to come dressed in the part. I said, pardon me? Yeah. He said, oh, well, the role is called Leather Tuscadero. I said, yeah, like I knew that. Yeah. I said, this is me. This is me. And so I auditioned and I got the part and it was for three seasons, which is great. But I had to fit it in in between the touring and the hit records. I met Henry the first day with the director always remember that. I read for them. They were happy with that. I know I always knew I could act anyway. And uh, then I went out to meet Henry and the director. And Henry stopped and went around the back of me and looked at my ass. So I stopped and went around the back and looked at his. And the director said, yep, that's it. That's yeah, the chemistry. Yeah, that's it. That's great. <laughs> Good for you. And that kind of dovetails a little bit to another thing I want to talk to you about. Image. You projected female empowerment. You were a strong front woman who played a mean bass, and that's all there is to it. And I've read critics who called you a rock chick. To me, that sounds condescending, because the difference between you and Phil Lynott is that you don't have an Irish accent. You're just a rock and roll bass player. I am. And, and you're not projecting some man's idea of what a sex symbol is or should be. Oh, my. Not at all. Yeah. Did you ever get any no. pushback from the record label or by some ill-advised photographer wanting you to compromise that just to sell no. records? No, and if he, if anybody ever said that, they only said it once. Um, 
I am pretty stubborn, pretty uncompromising on these things I'm going to say now. I never have done gender. I don't do it now. I didn't do it then. Uh, I don't consider myself a female musician. I consider myself a musician. Right. I take myself seriously. I'm a bleep, 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 good bass player. Say okay. I, I'm a fucking good bass player. Damn right. Damn right. I do a 20-minute bass and drum solo for years now, and it has people on their feet scream. I'm a good bass player. I don't take any prisoners. I have always taken myself seriously, and I, I come from that school where whatever you put out, you get back. So because I didn't come across as, hey, do you think I'm okay? Never. I take myself seriously. So I got treated seriously. Mm. Um I feel he—he he was a friend of mine, and I, I like I said, I don't make differences. I can, right. I can hold my own in any band. I've jammed with everybody. Uh, I'm just good at what I do. It never—it never dawned on me for a millisecond that I can't do such and such because I'm a girl. I, I just never thought of things that way. Right, and I don't do now. I mean, even now, I digress a little bit, but it's true. I one time when I had my broken bones and I was laid up for five months about. 10 years ago, somebody walked by the window of my house. Somebody I didn't recognize. I got on my walker. I've got a broken knee mm. and walked out to this six foot two guy in his face and said, who the fuck are you and what do you want? There, that explains my character. Good. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I said, no BS. No, I'm not. I am six foot two in my head and I will remain that. But I wouldn't change my height for anything. I like being little and being powerful. Well, that's I it. Yeah. like it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, do they call that the, the uh, Napoleon, Napoleon complex? complex. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah. That's me to a T, too. Yeah, and I don't care. Yeah, yeah there you go. You have yep. a certain attitude when you're little. You know what? My mouth is my weapon. Yep. That's it. That's <laughs> I it. says, yep. I'm talking to a kindred soul. That's I it. know it. That's it. I, yeah, I don't have to explain it to you. No. You got it. No. <laughs> now, what about the musicians in your band, the guys in your band? Because... I interviewed Linda Ronstadt once, and I was asking her about the Eagles, how they came from her backing band. She said she was always getting a feeling that the guys in her band wanted to go away and start their own thing because backing a chick isn't cool to them. I don't think you had any of that jazz, did you? I didn't have any of that. Um, you know, okay, I can explain it this way. I've had, uh, when I do big festivals and all that, and you end up in the bar with a lot of other acts, and these are all people probably the same age, very famous on their own, and we have a drink and we start talking, and this conversation has happened many times. This will explain what I'm trying to say. And it always gets around, eventually, to when they first saw me on top of the Pops in England, right? Right. And like big, you know, culture shock. Oh my God, there's a girl with a bass guitar leading a band of men rocking. Oh, my God. So we talk about this, and I say, and I've asked this question many times. Okay, guys, we're all sitting here. You're all famous in your own right. Now, did you ever think while you were watching me that I was a girl showing you that I could be as good as you? And all of them say, no, not at all. What was I? You were just natural. Okay. Did you ever see that I was trying to be sexy? No. What was I? You were just natural. So what I'm trying to say is, whatever I did, whatever I do, it's not gender. It's just me being me. And this is where I'm uncompromising. And I get on my podium. I will not change who and what I am for anybody in this world. And I will not justify it. You keep on
described as glam, which I don't understand at all. The only thing I can work out is that you hit the British scene at the same time T-Rex was huge. But it's just rock and roll. It is. And what you say is absolutely correct. And it was explored in my documentary. I mean, even Mike Chapman said Susie was never glam. I've never been glam. Um, in fact, I was up there in a black leather jumpsuit with no makeup on. Right. So there. So there the opposite. Go. Yeah, the opposite. So anti-glam, if you like. I'm anti-glam. There okay. I am. I never had an uncle. All right. Um, <laughs> I think it's only because I came along having hits at that time. Right. So, so that's where it got confused. But I've always been based in rock and roll. In fact, I have to quote Mike Chapman. I think it was in Billboard doing a big article on me. And he said, out of every artist I've worked with and every artist I know, there's nobody more authentic than Susie Quattro and rock and roll. But that's, that's he said that. Yeah. He said that. But yeah, that, that is where I'm based. I'm based in rock and roll. That's who I am. 78, you put out the If You Knew Susie album which was not a complete departure, but it was a different sound than the one that put you on the map in the UK and around the world. Less driving rock and roll, more singer-songwriter vibe. If you can't give me love and don't change my luck, it almost sounds like a Nicolette Lawson, Linda Ronstadt sound. Covering Tom Petty's breakdown, I mean, you know, that, he was not Tom Petty yet. I and, know. And yet you got that, I know. that song. Yeah, I saw him at the Whiskey or Go-Go. Okay. A real short thing of it. Yeah. Um, Mike had moved to America. He had broken with Nicky Chin, and he didn't want to work with anybody. He was like really a no man land. I got happy days. We went over there. We met up with Mike. I said, let's work together again. He said, yes, let's. And he went to the opening night of uh, Saturday Night Fever. And he said to me, I think if we're going to work together, we need a little change. I said, I agree. We can't keep doing the same thing. So we, he said, I love your natural sound when you're doing a country thing in your comfortable range. Because Mike always took me at the top of my range. And he said, I love your natural voice. Not that the other wasn't unnatural. It was just pushed. So he wrote that song and we, we made that album. Great album. It is. Um, I saw Tom Petty at that point, before he was Tom Petty, at the Whiskey or Go-Go. And I thought it was the best band I'd heard for years. And I covered his song. He came to a gig about a year later after that album came out at the bottom line. I didn't know he was in the audience. He kept it quiet. And when I got back to my hotel, there was 12 Hood Roses waiting from Tom Petty. And he said, thank you for the plug every night. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, but it was not mathematical thing. It was just, we need to change it up a bit, which I agreed with. Anyway, so that album had a purpose. It got us back together. And it was a conscious decision to not regurgitate what we'd done before. Our love is alive. And so we begin. Foolishly laying our hearts on the table. Stumbling in. Our love is a flame. Burning within. Now and then. Got to number four in the States with Stumbling In, which is a perfect pop song, you know. Great song. Great one song. One of the most enduring and famous rock duets, maybe second only to Elton and Kiki D over there. It was just a great track. Um, I think it came out separately as a single. Yeah. It, it did happen by accident. We were in Cologne, finishing off, if you knew Susie, big award ceremony, lots of famous people. And then after the award ceremony, we were all at the VIP party afterwards. And there was a band on stage playing to entertain all these famous people. And I went to everybody who was there, every famous person. 
And I said, hey, come on up and sing with me. No, 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 no. I was getting so angry. Mm. And finally, and Mike was there, obviously, because we're recording. And I grabbed Chris Norman. I grabbed him. I didn't, I didn't ask him. I grabbed him. <laughs> and I took him by the shoulders. And I said, come here. We went on stage. And we're going to sing. He said, okay. He didn't have a choice. And Mike was watching. And Mike liked what he saw. He liked what he heard. And he went, ooh, duet. Mm, duet. And the next day, this is such a funny story. The next day, we were waiting for Mike to arrive in the studio. And he came in a little bit late. And he said to the engineer, turn on the microphone, please, right now, quick, quick, quick. And he went to the mic and he grabbed his acoustic guitar. He said, Susie, get on the piano. I said, okay. And he said, now, whatever I sing, I want you to play on the piano after it. Da, 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 da. I said, all right. And he went, our love is alive. Da, 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 da. And so we begin. Da, 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 da. And I did it. Mm. Just the chorus. He said, fine, thank you. Send me that. Now I got to write the verse. I went, oh, my God. Creation, magical creation. Yeah, there it is again. You know, all of us musicians, all of us, all of us writers, whatever, when we're creating something, we will just start doing what we do. Right. And then something will come in and we'll find a similarity and then we put it through our little system and it comes out like that. I mean, I have to tell the story of my heart and soul. I need you home for Christmas on mm, this beautiful song. Beautiful. Yeah, and I I have to this 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 describes it perfectly. I was sitting on the patio doing my acoustic writing like I like to do because I'm old school. I am old. I'm 71. And Richard was in the little home studio working on tracks. And when we're when we are ready, we come together and we do it. And he left the door open. And I could hear this track with a very simple bass line, a little guitar loop, and a drum loop. And it was coming out me on the patio. And I can't describe it. I just went, what? And it hit me in my Detroit heart, I have to say. It hit me in my Motown heart. Sure. And I went, what is that? Put down all my stuff, walked out to the studio. I said, Richard, what is that? And he said, what? What? Just something I'm working on. What I said, don't ask me any questions. I knew in my creative heart that if I questioned or let anything come into my head, it would ruin the moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I kept it all in the heart. It was like an arrow in my heart. Sure. So Richard, turn on the mic, put on my headphones, and play that track. Do it now. So he put the track on, and I sang those first four lines of the song without thinking whatsoever about what I was singing what I was saying in a voice I had never used before. And that's creation at its best. You know, you've been so generous with your time. I don't want to monopolize your day. We've had a good talk. Oh, God. Yeah. Quick question. I like to always wrap up with this one. Worst gig. Oh, God. Okay. What just came to mind? My worst gig probably would have been, I was very sick, but I am the show must go on kind of girl. Sure. My upbringing. And I did the gig. But in between songs, I had to go over to the side of the stage and throw up in a bucket. But I have to say, I never missed a note. <laughs> we are kindred spirits because I spent my 27th birthday in New London, Connecticut, doing the exact same thing. Okay. So, and I'm a drummer. I kept the bucket next to me I, just in yeah. case. But luckily, I timed it right with the breaks. I did too. And you know what you can say? Oh, bucket. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Is that's a great way to end it. That's perfect. perfect. Well, Susie, thank you so much. I have to say, I give you a compliment. It's been a joy talking to you. Um, thank you. You're smart. You're intuitive. 
and we're on the same page. So thank you.
a little Christmas in August right there. From her latest CD, The Devil and Me, the great Susie Quattro, channeling her inner Motown with my heart and soul. And I want to thank Susie for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And the aforementioned CD is available for purchase on her website and on Amazon. Links for both are in the show notes. And I invite you to check it out. All of our shows are available for streaming at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com as well as on iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, and there's a new contender in the audio podcast field, audia.io, A-U-D-E-A A-U-D-E-A.io. Visit us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast, all typed out as one word. No spaces or commas, please. And as always, thank you for checking out the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Mm-hmm.